Abe here, and I wanted to let you know that if you're able, you can upgrade your small beans skill over at patreon.com slash small beans. Here's why you should do that. If you pledge five measly beans a month, you get access to about half our podcasts that you don't get if you're just listening to the free feed. Shows include Star Trek The Next Futurama, Spielboys, Like Razor Blade Pie, and bonus episodes of I'll Show You Mine If You Show Me Yours. Not to mention bonus content, including info and updates on the movie we're making, Papa Bear. Hey, where's all the reasons to not subscribe to Patreon? I can't find them. Anyway, back to the show. I think, honestly, I think Metal Gear Solid straight up ripped off this movie. Like, I like when I oh. watched this movie, and I this is one of the first times I've ever watched it. I was like, "Oh, so Metal Gear is a pure ripoff." Like, mm-hmm. I, like everything mm-hmm. about that is from this. I mean, his name is Snake. It's so bad. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's so bad. It's like I don't know. I, I'm always He's got the eye patch. Yeah, I'm yeah. always after Kojima a little bit, which is you know that's that's not a good look for me because he's no. Great. It came from his brilliant and enormous brain. <laughs> you can't take. No one else can think of these concepts. I mean, it, yeah, it just felt so transparent when I watched this movie. Though it was like, wow, dude, you stole almost the entire idea here, man. What if you? What if you? All right, if you saw him in the street and you walked up to him and you're like, I've always thought of, you know, like, <laughs> I always thought of Metal Gear Solid as like a Escape from New York type game. <laughs> Would he immediately you know? kill me? Uh, he just stabs you immediately. As he should. Times. Yeah. yeah, as he should. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'll have had it coming by the then. arrogance on that guy. Yeah, I'll have had that coming uh, for a, quite a while yeah. at that point. <laughs> I always, I when I introduce myself into a room, I usually say I'm a stranding type guy. <laughs> <laughs> Have you played one minute of that fucking apocalypse? Have you played no. it? No, no, it's it's. I don't. I know Mike's gonna listen to this and be mad. I don't care. It's awful. It's an awful franchise. I just know I'm a strand type. You know? <laughs> of course you are, you ghoul. <laughs> it's just the absolute arrogance the absolute arrogance of someone to say i have created genre i am creator a strand type yes a, a previously mm. unconceived i mean idea. even if he's like he's he's the kind of of there's only a handful of people in the world who can go like prove me wrong prove me wrong though and it's like uh, i mean like you know what are you gonna do? Tell James Cameron he can't make like movies about water. The right, guy right. fucking That's knows that. He's do, the water guy. Know, like, he's our water yeah, guy. So, yeah. so it's like he's he's got he can back it up, but still, it would have been funny if Kojima had made a game that was called Death Stranding, and it was literally just Face Off. Like it was just he'd copied Face Off or something. Oh, he just keeps movie. doing it. Yeah. We can't let him get away with it. He keeps that. doing it. Why wouldn't he keep well, doing it? You know, this isn't about video games, but this is about the the critically acclaimed motion picture <laughs> that was Metal Gear <laughs> Metal's, uh, Metal. What is it? Metal what Gear Solid, Solid rips the right Solid rip Snake, right off. Solid Snake is yeah. Yeah, based off of, which is to say that you have fallen into a hole, and that hole is the podcast. <laughs> 
director piece theater <laughs> welcome to the hole we, welcome to the hole baby yeah. this is where we talk about directing and we talk about yeah, you know, cool stuff that you may not have noticed, and the way in which we're going to do that is we're going to have today. Adam Ganser yeah. is going to speak. Adam, yeah, climb into my let's hole, go. everyone. <laughs> I'm Abe Epperson, and I'm here just to laugh at stuff and good, and just be surprised along with you, and essentially not earn my keep. Uh, but <laughs> is... here we are, and today we're talking about shooting a cheap apocalypse. We are, and we're covering the film Escape. From New York. Indeed, yes. Whoop. Yeah, so I, this is a film that probably everybody has, like, you know, you've seen at least pieces of it. Uh, most people probably have watched it, especially if you're listening to this podcast. Um, but I want to start with, like, just kind of setting up the reality of the movie world a little bit. And, like, to do that, I just have to start with, like, a bummer phrase. And that bummer phrase is, budget rules all. <laughs> budget rules everything. <sighs> uh, budget is basically the inescapable fact for most filmmakers. And that's so true, in fact, that most films, like, we determine what they are not as much by the script or the needs of the story, but by resources. Like, that is the probably the unspoken fact of most Hollywood productions, is, like, uh, budget actually is deciding what this story is about, not the script. And... It's not uncommon for a script or a story to telescope, meaning to expand, or to contract because of the realities of the budget they can secure. Um, and that's true of every film, like from you know the the biggest budget Chris Nolan feature to mm-hmm. uh, you know the indie budget that's barely getting all their money from a Patreon or whatever. You know, like it's just a, a reality of how films are made. And on this podcast, we've talked a few times about films that got out of control with budgets uh, and how that almost always ended up becoming sort of a snake eating its own tail experience. Call me snake. <laughs> it's not a snake <laughs> with an eye patch. Uh, the, we recently did an episode on Waterworld, and I would say at, the, like, at its very core, Waterworld's problem is that it didn't understand how to manage its budget. Like That's mm-hmm. the first problem. Um, the second, uh, another film, similar problem, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The, the, the budget was not commensurate to the scale of the operation that the director mm-hmm. wanted to do. Um, there are examples, once in a great while, of directors going over budget and betting really hard on the film and staking their reputation on it and it paying off. You know, and then when it does that, it does that big time. The two examples that sprung to mind for me of that are James Cameron on Titanic when he famously gave his fee back, like the film was over budget, and he's like, okay, I, you don't have to pay me anything. Instead, right. I'll take this amount of the back end of gross revenue on Titanic, you know, and, and then he laughed, he all, laughed the the all the way into the deep brine from whence he sprang. Yeah, yeah he made so much <laughs> money on that. Um, similarly, and probably less popularly, uh, Mel Gibson bet really hard on Passion of the Christ when films did not, nobody wanted to greenlight that movie. Um, and so he was willing to front his own money and go over budget uh, for the back end part of it. And he got I, a huge amount of money from that film. Um, kind of, you know, Christ-like. In a way, oh, man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> However. Just really selfless. <laughs> very selfless. Yes, what a benevolent act it was. Uh, mm. But with, but the real, like the real, story of filmmaking is that with those rare exceptions aside 
um, films really can't go over budget. That's just that isn't how it works. Um, even Marvel movies or James Cameron epics can't really go over budget, uh, with you know occasional exceptions. And so one of the ways that you get a film that goes over budget, right, is to make a film that's so good that it succeeds within the constraints of a budget, <laughs> right? Like that's right. which is like lightning in a bottle right you know like when exactly. does that happen it, it doesn't happen and like i think like the the key piece of evidence that it, nobody's really talking about but they really should be is um in Yuritu, right uh, a two-time academy award-winning director one best director for the movie the revenant okay and this was in 2015 and he went over budget by like double i've told i'm told something like that like he went way over with the revenant and he got an academy award for that and he has not directed a Hollywood feature since. Yeah. And I think that is yeah. an extremely telling fact. Like, this is mm-hmm. not a thing you can do. Um, and so... And it's a shame yeah. because, like, half the budget went to the bear. The bear <laughs> yeah, had a, sure it did. Shaking around that actor. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, like, the, the bear had a heroin problem. And that mm. gets expensive, Yeah, man. he had the real heroin bear. Yeah. That's what cocaine bears It is bears a shame about Inaratu. What a, what, a, what a career so far. He's a great filmmaker. Um, um, and yeah. now he's making short films and he made one Spanish language feature, I want to say, that wasn't in a Hollywood production. And maybe that was his choice. But I would guess, given the amount of success he's had, he probably doesn't want to stop making Hollywood films. Why would he? He just won two Academy Awards. <clears throat> right. And you see uh, you see careers like this all the time, occur like this all the time, even since like the 80s. Uh, you know, people direct something like Point Break. Yeah, You know, absolutely. And then where did she go and then she came back and she's like i'm still here baby and someone took a gamble on it and then it's just like okay yeah you hurt lockered your way right in back into our hearts um it's kind of that it's it's hard to come back from it can be a real death sentence for a career that's why like a lot of the way people talk on the internet about film budget as though it was sort of a thing that doesn't matter is not accurate it's more like a fantasy about how hollywood works Mm-hmm. But the reality, like budget is budget, and people have to live within it. It's one of the reasons why we're striking. Um, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about John Carpenter. So John Carpenter Ooh. is a, a famously DIY filmmaker, um, and his early career is a really interesting exploration of what it takes to prove yourself. Um, his mm-hmm. first two features, which probably most people haven't watched, were made on a shoestring budget, and he had to do basically everything on them. They were Dark Star in 1974, An Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976. And on those films, he was the writer and the director and the composer and the editor and, like, you know, the key grip and every other thing, right? Like, he, he had to do everything. Um, a thing that a lot of filmmakers can't do and almost all of them don't do. So, uh, interestingly, though, despite the success of those films, he, he wasn't able to get directing work, so he had to start working as a screenwriter. And uh, when he had sold one or two successful screenplays, um, then they were ready to give him some money to make his you know, next feature film, which was Halloween. And he only got $300,000 for that, right? Mm. And Halloween made $65 million in the 70s, Damn. which is still one of the most successful independent films of all time, right? Pretty epic success on almost no money. Um, so it's interesting that after that, in 1980... Uh, he was given a two-picture deal out, off of the success of Halloween, 
And uh, his first film, he got $1 million to make, and it was The Fog. And um, it's, you know, it's fine. It's largely forgettable. He's kind of dissatisfied with it. But it made $21 million, 20 times the budget. Pretty good, right? Yeah. And the second film he made is the one we're talking about today, Escape from New York. Bankable. Just the bankable king. Well, that's the thing is, by this time, this is his fourth or fifth film, and he's proven that he makes financially successful films um, on a low budget. So you'd think this would be the time that they're like, all right, we're going to give you a real budget. Now, I'm going to remind everybody, if it's been a while since you've watched this, what is the premise of Escape from New York? The premise is, in a post-apocalyptic America, New York has been transformed into... New York. (laughs) It's been transformed into a lawless prison city where there is... Uh, mayhem runs amok. No one gets in. No one gets out. If they put you in there when you're imprisoned, that's the rest of your life. You stay there. It's surrounded by these gigantic guard tower walls, and okay. it's Arkham City in there. That's the whole idea, right? Yeah, it's huge. Right, it's a huge idea. It's a really big idea. And of course, then if the president uh, crashes Air Force One in there, and somebody has to go back and retrieve <laughs> him. That's the premise, and uh-huh. <laughs> which is hilarious, and. To do all this, Carpenter was given a budget of $6 million. Fuck me. $6 million. He's the most devious director in all of New York. Yeah, he'll scrap his way through the Big Apple. You know, like, uh, there are literal scenes that cost more money than that film. Yeah. Like, no, he's just fucking, he he doesn't, he's doing it all, baby. It's unreal. It's unreal. And the fucking, he's doing the music, so it's like, he's just like, he's killing it. And he just knows, he's he knows what he's worth. And he's like, uh, I could do it for $6 million. And he fucking did. I mean, yeah, he did accept the project. So, right, if your objection is, well, he said yes, then okay. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's still stupid. It's still really it's... stupid. Like, I just want to give you guys a couple of points of comparison, okay? <laughs> Ben-Hur, a movie that was made decades earlier, the chariot race scene alone in Ben-Hur would have cost $34 million in comparative yeah. money. It cost $4 million when it was filmed. So almost as much as the fucking budget of this film. Times Square, mm-hmm. uh, just one area of New York, uh, was emptied for a few minutes to film a scene in Vanilla Sky where Tom York discovers he can sprint to a Radiohead track, and we all applauded. Mm -hmm. And it cost them $1 million to empty it for five minutes, or like 20 minutes or whatever. Okay, so like, he's got to film a whole damn movie with this premise. Um, And it's impossible. It's physically impossible. Not if you're John Carpenter. Right, not if you're John Carpenter, right? And that's... The snake. (laughs) And that's like, ultimately what I want to talk about is sort of like, so how does he solve that problem? And more importantly, I think you'll, you're going to see that John Carpenter's artistry as a filmmaker is born in part out of practical decisions and in part out of a truly brilliant creative instinct for how to make constraints become artistic flourish um, as right. he builds yeah. this apocalypse. And he created essentially a cinematic language for this film based on these constraints that makes it work and have an identity, yeah. and it's really cool. Um, yeah. So my subtitle for this episode is How to Shoot a Cheap Apocalypse. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Here's where yeah. here's where Abe does his mouth guitar, and we get into the second act. I like it. I like it. This uh, it's great. I'm, let's dive right <laughs> this in. Is great. Man. I'm excited. You just sing this the is words. fucking. This is this is such a like. I love this. Okay, good. John Carpenter good. talking about I know cheap you filmmaking. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. Sometimes I pick topics just to make you happy. Like sometimes I'm like, you know what? Abe would really like it if I did this topic. Well, uh, this is one of those I times. That and happy right now. <laughs> you are, and you're beautiful. As I'm sipping my big K. You ever have a big no, K? So are you a big K guy? Wow. I think the K stands for Kroger. It's like an off <laughs> brand. A, if you don't have Kroger stores, what a tangent that I'm not going to take any further. But then that was interesting. Big K. Okay, so <laughs> I just want to say right up top, there was never a chance this movie was going to get shot in New York. That was never going to happen. Completely impossible. There is absolutely no way you can shoot in New York for anything approaching that amount of money. You couldn't do it for a hundred times that amount of money, probably. It, it's just not doable. Like not a hundred, but ten times, twenty, like a hundred times, it gets pretty tough, you know, to do this movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's also just logistically impossible. The amount of control that yeah. you have to exert over a city, like a city street, is high, and New York is the most densely trafficked city in America. So shooting this film becomes extremely problematic if you want to shoot on location. So they entertained it briefly, and then, of course, that was like, you know, well, we can't do that. So the next idea was, what if we shot this in a back lot? And that's where the other wall in the prison sort of sets in, because it is physically impossible to build this apocalypse with that amount of money. Right. So you can't find it. You can't find it, and you can't build it. Right. So like That's it's a real fucked. problem. It left them one option only, and it's very grim. They had to find a place that looks like New York, but had already had an apocalypse happen. So like, yeah, what is the, you can't. That's insane that's the only because way that's to do like it. The, your whole movie and you're gambling on, yeah, we'll find an option. Don't have it it's yet. It's pretty wild. That's, it's pretty that wild. That is like pure filmmaking yes. to me because that's just problem solving with your back against the biggest wall that exists. that's that's like a gun to the gun against your head you know what i mean like yeah, that's yeah. like so many guns it's a against gun your on head. a gun it's like a snake bliskin on a gun on a gun <laughs> to your you're head. you're enjoying the name snake uh snake. it says by the way just like random political comment it says a lot about our world that this plan worked out <laughs> <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Like, that's, wow. That's, that's it worked dark. out. It's pretty dark. That's fucking dark. Anyway, so like after a pretty lengthy search, like they sent a guy on an all expense paid trip around America to find this. Uh, Just doing cocaine, looking at Yeah, looking at shitty cities. Uh, they basically settled on East St. Louis because in 1976, there was a fire there that had burned several city blocks. Like it had ruined a huge section of the city and it was kind of just left like that. Right. And like that. So it was like, well, it kind of looks like New York. It's burned down. Nobody really lives here. So we got it. Perfect. Uh, The idea here that, and this is why I'm getting at this, is like they had to find a set that was already built. They don't have a lot of resources to decorate it. So like they found that. They found an apocalypse. They found it. And I wonder if they talked about it. They had to. I wonder if like Kurt Russell's like just like practicing his lines and he looks over and he's just like, a family lived here. You know, like, it's actually tragic. Too bad I can't break character. I can't break character. Otherwise, I'd care There's about no, that. No empathy. Empathies for guys with two eyes. I only got you, one, yeah. and it's on the prize. Uh, no human compassion. That's why. <laughs> so 
here's the second wild fact that's just sort of is supported by the production here. So like they the third act of the film takes place on a bridge, right? And the bridge is supposed to be, I want to say mm-hmm. the 39th Street Bridge, a famous bridge in New York. Well, they found one and it was in East St. Louis, but it was an old bridge that was no longer in service. And they had to purchase it in order to shoot there because it was so in such bad shape the city was like, we don't was want take to the take liability. Yes, we will not take liability for you working on it. Fuck. So they sold the bridge to the production for one dollar. And then at the end of the production, they sold it back for one dollar just to avoid the liability what issue good, of shooting on that bridge. That's a really good deal. What a, what a it's good really deal smart. I, I bet it's because they also were getting a shit ton of money for just shooting in St. Louis. Anyway. I'm sure if you um, are the mayor of a city that has an area like East St. Louis and you manage and to like, make yeah. money on East St. Louis at all, you're taking that deal. The right. bridge is, by yeah. the way, the bridge is not functional, so it's literally not inconvenient for them at all. You know, right? Like it's yeah, not a, they yeah. don't want people there, but yeah, that liability concern—that's insane, and that's such a carpenter way to deal. It's a pretty with, risky with a thing, too. It's very yeah. risky. Yeah. So, what, another amazing fact is they basically had to convince people to turn off the power to get the look for the film uh, for several hours at a time. Meaning, like, they had to shut down entire city blocks on a fundamental human service level, um, which tells you how few people were really living there, but also not a thing that could happen in L.A. or New York. No. Right? Like, that's how run down out is. of You'd be laughed out of the room that you can't even get Right. Into. They're like, you had to pay $6 million to talk to me. I am going to accept that check. Now get out. Now yeah, get like, out. Like, it's yeah. not... Yeah, not doable, not possible. So it's pretty crazy the amount of control they were able to secure for no money. You know, like that's pretty wild and and impressive on a production feat. You know, it's like it, it, the producers have done incredible work here. So after all this incredible producing, uh, we still have to create a shooting plan that uh, makes it possible to render this apocalypse, knowing that. We really can't see too much of the world because, uh, you know, it's going to just look like there was a fire, not like there's been generations of conflict here. And we don't really have any money to bring in set decoration, you know, so we have to come up with a shooting plan that makes those reactions work. Okay, so this means on an artistic level, a bunch of decisions have to happen. Now, I don't know exactly the order these decisions happened in. I'm just going to build them on, like, in a sort of logical order so we can follow how one thing leads to the next. I don't know that... John Carpenter might have conceived all this intellectually before he even agreed to this plan. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's possible. Like, I don't think that would be a superhuman thing. It's completely possible. But I just want the audience to know, I'm going to walk through this step by step so you can see how these decisions led to the next ones even though they may not have arrived in that order. So you're in a place, you can't really dress it. You can't really uh, afford because of lighting and cost to shoot multiple angles on things. So you end up having to create a shooting plan. That means almost every scene has to be a uh, one direction. You have to look one direction mm-hmm. and that's how the scene plays out. Right. Yep. And so what that means is you get lots and lots and lots of scenes that are one long take. And in that take, you watch them walk and discover the object, and then they go to the object, and that's the scene, right? Or you watch people talk mm-hmm. at each other in a 50-50 for the entire duration of the scene. I mean, it's helpful that Snake basically is just statue. That's exactly you know, right. Like he, everyone talks to That's exactly him. right. Um, 
so it's not uncommon for us in this movie to watch an entire scene in the one take, right? And the and the movement of the scene is done by a single lateral dolly move, right? Or a slightly a slightly diagonal dolly move that feels pretty lateral. Um, and this is particularly true anytime they want to show us the big set piece, right? So that's another thing that right. Carpenter has to think about is like, how can I show big set pieces that make it feel like it's a big world, uh, but also I don't have anything <laughs> to show them? How do I do that? Right. So what does he do? He gives us these kind of uh, these single lateral direction reveals of set pieces. Like we sort of dolly into the reveal of here's the crashed plane. We dolly past the side lateral shot of here is the gigantic helicopter that we're going to watch take off. Right. And it feels like we're seeing uh, like it's you know, it gives us the emotional feeling of a reveal. And it's like, ooh, that really works. And it's cool. Um, And that's why he doesn't cut. Now, I mention this because. If you've ever watched, you know, The Dark Knight or any Marvel movie, one of the first things they're going to do to show off how much money they have is a 360 degree shot. Yeah. First yeah. thing look they're going to do. All the money. Look at what we did, baby. So like Dark Knight very famously has several scenes that are just exposition to like the, and the scenes are completely pointless other than here's a fucking cool shot of Gotham City, baby, and it's a steady cam around mm-hmm. Dark Knight watching, you know, uh, watching Two Face and Commissioner Gordon yak it up, right? And and like right. it's that's it, and and that costs like immense amounts of money to control an entire city landscape and light it and all this stuff, right? So that's the contrast. That's what a blockbuster film would normally do with this kind of a a, a premise to show you how apocalyptic yeah. it really is. It's crazy how you know, like for years I knew. Because I had watched basketball, what M- Madison Square Garden looked like, you know, like you see a Knicks game and you're like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's the it. Object. It's enormous. And the equivalent, the Madison Square Garden that they have in this movie is like, I don't know, like it feels like a high school right. <laughs> amphitheater, you know, and it's and it like, it's pretty is. big. Yeah. I mean, it works, but it's like, that ain't the Madison no, that's not Square it, Garden. Buddy. Yeah, that's not and, it. And it's just sh- goes to show how much that if you're doing the right stuff most of the time, how even big set pieces can be, you can be convinced as an Correct. audience member. Ah, fuck it. Correct. You know? So even if you don't have a Steadicam or do a 360-degree shot, if you're making a blockbuster film with a premise like this, you're going to do spectacle in several directions in the middle of a scene, right? Like, imagine, for instance, like, I don't know, man, let's say Thanos on whatever planet he snapped everyone out of existence on, okay? I don't remember the movie, but you get it. So, like, there's lots of... Earth. (laughs) Was it Earth? No, no, when they fight him at the end. What planet are they on at the end Uh when when they're fighting him? And it, in the end game, yeah, end game, yes. Earth, they're on Earth. All right, I paid attention. I think no, maybe I not. It was maybe like some other planet, right. and they all no, portal you're, in you're there. You're totally right yeah. because they like threw a moon at them at one point, <laughs> right? I don't know. You could tell me anything. I would have believed it happened. I've saw, I saw that movie yeah. once. I was like, well, it happened. T- Earth two, yeah. Right, Earth 2, yeah. we'll call it. Okay, so like, just imagine any part of the final conflict of that movie. And you'll realize immediately that the camera is going to show you at least two directions. You're going to see the direction of the bad guys, and you're going to see the directions of the good guys who are fighting them, which means the entire world behind both perspectives has to be created and lit and Mm -hmm. shot. Even if it's a green screen, it has to be created. Well, again, 
they don't have the money to shoot two ways in this apocalypse. So they have so to shoot. So they're doing French reverses all They the have way. to shoot one way. And that means you don't really have multiple angles and you don't really have multiple takes. You get one shot or at it. Or if you do have angles, you're, you're faking, faking it, it for a different location. But they rarely do. Go completely else. Right. They, rarely they rarely do, do that. Carpenter lives in the long take. So he's Correct. like, yeah, it's Correct. Fine. So those restrictions are insanely prohibitive for the premise of this movie, right? So here's how I, I want to, like, here's what makes Carpenter so great. Is Carpenter, knowing these restrictions, has to figure out how to give the film not only get the stuff on screen, but to give it a sense of cinematic style, right? Yeah. So here's what happens. The first thing is that you have to create a sense of narrative progress through lateral dolly moves, Right, he decides. Okay, so the first, the building block of this movie, lateral dolly moves. People are going to move side to side horizontally on the x-axis, proscenium, yes, as yeah. as often as they can, to you know, so I can show off the few cool things that I have to show, and so that I can give the sense that we're getting somewhere. Right, to give that emotional tension feeling of where are we going? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was here. Right, so. uh a lot of this movie is essentially horizontal dolly shots to reveal information. Like I said, the burned out plane, the helicopters on the takeoff pad, pad, pad. almost any time snake runs past anything, it's horizontally shot. Yeah. Right. Even cabbies entrance. Yes. Cabbies. Correct. Um, the first car chase in the movie is almost entirely horizontal, which is kind of a surprising fact. Right. Mm-hmm. So the next thing, mm-hmm. so that gives rise to the next problem, which is how do I do conversation pieces? Okay. Tons and tons of these conversation pieces are actually 50-50s. Now, 50-50 is when I'm seeing two profiles, right? Half of one person's face, or 50%, and half of the other person's face, 50%. Those are called 50-50s. Interesting thing about 50-50s is they sort of create in your brain a sense of conflict. You know, you feel like these two people aren't getting along. Or at odds. These people are at odds. Look at the... um... Like, think of the poster for Enemy Mind. Yes, exactly. Or any UFC fight. You know what I mean? Like they're almost always two people looking at each other. You're looking at a profile of it. So, but one interesting piece of that is like on a, on a basic primal human level, both people get dehumanized by a profile shot because we feel humanly connected to people when we see both of their eyes. That's a narrow to the eye line looking closer to camera. That's how you get emotional connection with a character looking at them as close to, as close to eye line as possible. Um, so an interesting feature is when we do 50-50s, we feel like we're outside of the conflict and it makes the people feel more emotionally dehumanized, right? But our mm-hmm. char- our main character, Snake, only has one eye. And so this 50-50 is actually a way of showing how he views the world, right? Like he, he yeah. is a kind of uh, a one-eyed person who we don't know how we feel about Snake. him. And he's in perennial conflict with everybody else. And there is no deeper way to connect to him because he only has one eye. Right? Yeah. So these like presentational images actually are a better way of showing who he is than if we'd gotten traditional coverage. You know? Right. Yeah. Statue. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. that's a pretty intuitive understanding already from Carpenter's point of view. Like, pretty cool. And I just wanted to sneak in here. Like, I tried, I don't know how many times, I'm going to say 20 times, to sneak a 50 50 profile shot into a comedy sketch and cracked. Oh, I yeah, shot yeah, them yeah. over and over and over again because I was like, I'm going to find a way to make this work. And they fucking don't in comedy films. They, they almost <clears throat> never work. Well, 
yeah, it, the stuff that we wrote there, it doesn't. I mm-hmm, agree with mm-hmm. you. But mm-hmm. like, you look at something like Punch Drunk it Love. It would work in that movie. And Adam Sandler, right. like fucking punching, you know, the wall or breaking the. Where there's know, real conflict. Like, glass yeah yeah there's conflict and it's more about being like i think you said it just a a few like 30 seconds ago where it's like it puts you in a perspective of an outside observer looking in and cracked was very much about identifying with like the point of view of the person of the character even in our wild sketches it was almost always written from the point of view of like you know here's just this wacky guy it's kind of like i same thing kind of happens like uh if you watch i think you should leave on netflix sketch in that way where it's like it's almost always down the barrel kind of like looking directly at tim robinson's face because you want to see him look at you and say stuff like i'm gonna kill you you know (laughs) stuff like that and it's about the presentation of the character as opposed to the presentation of the situation situation, right and we didn't really write situational comedy as much correct so that's that yes that is absolutely accurate thank you for explaining that for everyone because that is true (laughs) no no i'm serious that was really good no no it's good i was was just choked on my big (laughs) head that's all (laughs) too big a k for you is what it was Hey, uh, we're gonna get a third big K reference in by the end. Oh, of this I'm sure podcast. you will. Don't you rule of threes, motherfucker! I can't wait. Uh-huh. So, uh, mm-hmm. okay. So, look now, because we're operating so horizontally in this film and all of its dolly shots, and for a lot of its dialogue scenes, even now we have to create a sense of how do I imply or make danger happen in the film? This is supposed to be a dangerous mission, but I never get to see any foreboding imagery on the axis because I'm always flat to camera, right? That is an astute observation. Yes. That is very, yes. It's a real problem. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. The cutting off an axis and cutting off the depth axis in particular is so limiting. It's really limiting. To that like to 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 wit, I'm pretty sure the White House Down episode will have come out by now. Um, right. And you went uh, at some length about the importance of the vanishing point and the diagonal lines because they create a sense mm. of where are we going, which is how you create tension, right? Right. Uh, yeah, and we don't have that in this film because we only can shoot one direction. So Carpenter did something really ingenious here which is he decided to basically create a language involving three planes. And by planes, I literally mean two-dimensional surfaces within this uh, frame that we're looking at, right? And these, fra- these, these planes exist in every film, and they're used in a lot of films. But he's using them exclusively to create narrative experiences, right? And what I mean by that is we have a foreground, we have the subject matter in the middle ground, and then we have a background, Right. These are things you see all the time in films. He decides to use these planes to telegraph danger for us, right? And so what does he do? He puts something running by horizontally in the background, right? Or something running by horizontally in the foreground to tell us, oh, there's something you don't see. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So like he'll add danger by adding an element that our character may not see, which is a very horror director thing to do. Um, because they're locked in the focal plane. They're the subject of the shot, right? But because he's such a great horror director, it it invites us to speculate on all of the dangers outside of the frame, a thing that normally uh, we would not do because the frame is so limiting. But his use of these planes creates the world outside of the frame more meaningfully for us because we imagine it. 
It's so fucking genius. It really man. is. It's really, really smart. And the funny thing about it is he also sort of a, like he sort of makes the planes a little bit magical. You know, like they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're a little bit magical uh, in that right. like uh, something can be hiding. Because everyone's a goblin. Right. <laughs> yes, there are goblins literal goblins in, in this movie. So like yeah. things <laughs> can be hiding out of focus in the helicopter or in the foreground. And it's the equivalent as if they were shot in a different direction. Like it's all like mm-hmm. where like the we as though the hero wouldn't see them because we had to look a different way than the hero was looking to see it. That's not actually true. It's more that he chooses to think of these planes as almost entirely separate worlds. The best example of that is there's that stampede moment where all the goblins get up and they're like running yeah. you know, to the shop. And Snake literally is running with them, but on a different plane and they don't see him. And he's like doing right. sounds yeah. that they would obviously have heard and they don't hear him because they're that distinct. They're mm-hmm. like different locations even. Uh, which I think is yeah, cool. Yeah, you're like you're like watching him transgress through these like spaces. Correct. Kind of like he's just kind of traveler in like a foreign land. Correct. Yeah. So it's it's kind of it cool. is it's super cool and like you it's a little hokey but you don't question it because I mean you don't really question it because because it's fun and because uh the la- at this point the language has been executed so smoothly that you're not asking those kind of questions. You know, and it's a B movie, so I think he gets a little bit of license there, and he knows the world he's making. Um, I think he's right about that. Now, every great filmmaker knows that if you're going to set up a visual language, the important thing is to break it for meaningful purposes, right? Every cinematic language is about how can I then transgress it to show the most cathartic thing in the film. Just a brief other mm-hmm. example of this, so you can talk see what I'm talking about. The best scene in The Dark Knight is the Joker. Well, this is, that's a debate, but the Joker and Batman, when they finally see each other in the interrogation room, right? That's the scene everybody's been waiting for. And the thing that Christopher Nolan does in that that's very memorable is he starts breaking the 180 line between the two characters. Yeah, side to side dollars. He starts yeah. breaking the 180 line to show who's winning the argument, right? So every time somebody starts to win the argument, he switches to the other side of the 180 it's like line. A retro, yeah, record scratch. Correct. Like, er, Correct. Yeah. And then the end of the scene where Batman's literally punching him to try to make him admit to, you know, where where are they? Where are they, right? That whole scene. Where's Martha? He's literally <laughs> yeah, cutting whatever. between different sides of the 180 line on every single shot. It's yeah. a cool thing. Go watch it because it'll like teach you something about how to break a system for a filmmaking purpose. So in this True. film... Carpenter set up this very flat, horizontal world where things happen on planes. And the most natural thing to do is to then introduce the Z-axis for meaningful mm-hmm. moments, right? Which is exactly what he does. He finds important moments in the mm-hmm. film to work straight up and down at camera or away from camera on the Z-axis for the most cathartic and emotional moments. Okay, here are some of those moments. The glider crash. Right when when uh, right. when Snake lands on the building, that is right at camera and right away from camera. It's all Z it's all Z axis, right? The entire final act of the film is on a bridge. The bridge and it's directly yeah, it's at Z-axis. us, right? The car is chasing us. Okay, right. even the Duke. Yeah, the Duke. Yeah, wonderfully played by Isaac Hayes. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, even the wrestling stuff has some Z axis in it. Not a ton, but some. Right Mm -hmm. now I say that because you're going to probably watch the film and go, well, this isn't a strict 
you know, he's not religious about that rule. And that is true. Mm-hmm. He is still making a six million dollar version of a four hundred million dollar movie. So like he can't he doesn't get to like get so religious about it that it yeah, only I does. Think that. He took he knows that the Z axis, like no one no one goes to a movie and says, like, Oh, you broke the system exactly. not necessarily in the proper way. He knew that like, well, I have a location that I can use the Z axis. Correct. So I'm gonna do it. Right. You know? but, but he's uh, really smart like, yeah. at at deploying it in very careful moments to create more emotional <clears throat> that, catharsis. Right. I think that there's something to be like, well, you're you're kind of adjusting and the formula is kind of like being dictated mm-hmm. to you because of restrictions. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, this is a big moment. How can I make this unique? Well, let's make sure we can get something where I can shoot a lot more angles on it. That's right. Yeah. Let's go and make sure we get that. So you, you design, you point out your set pieces, you gather control and that's your kind of puncture point. That's like where it's like, I'd rather have control in this sequence. I will fuck all the other sequences as, as long, long as, as I can get it here you know, where it really matters. Something Spielberg talks about all the time. He's like, sometimes, you know, you have to realize that some of your movies has to, has to be like a little bit boring so that it can be a little bit more interesting later. Um, and I think that the same thing goes with technique, you know, when you really want the eyes to brighten up and the audience to be like, Oh, this feels like I should be paying attention. It's subliminal and obvious in some instincts you know that you're 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 just making sure that you have all those moving parts for those sequences and those are good sequences to choose so i think he's usually pretty right like the glider crash is like that's a big one of huge yeah it's a really big one in the film also the uh also the basketball court absolutely basketball yes that's another one now for those of you who are sort of curious what would it be like to see exactly these rules played out in a very strict religious way uh go watch a Wes Anderson movie because Wes Anderson is basically mm. doing exactly this rule set. You know, he's using planes yeah. uh, in a meaningful way. He's especially in like his most recent films, like French dispatch and stuff. Like he's definitely like mm. introducing foreground, background, midground as like different uh, meaningful spaces. And then often using Z axis for the, the biggest moments in the film. And the rest right. of the time they're working almost entirely horizontally. You know, like, uh, he's very strict about it. And it's basically the same rules. You know, basically mm-hmm. the same rules. Um, yeah. So, in conclusion, believe it or not, Abe, I, I decided this one was going to be shorter. Uh, no, in conclusion, one of the smart other things that we would we would spend more time talking about if this was a more cinematography-focused podcast uh, is that this film also decided to light nothing. Like almost nothing is lit, you know what I mean? Like they they're they're putting spotlights at key things and the rest of the frame is black. And it makes it feel very much of its time, but it also is like, look, this is a creative choice that got made to disguise how little thing how little they could do with set dressing. Right? And it works. I think it mostly right. works. You know, it feels kind of B movie-ish, but that's the tone, and that's okay. You know? Um and I know that like Abe and I feel mostly the same about this, although at times we've been different. Uh, I'm a director who loves to exert as much control as I can. That makes me feel like I've made the movie I wanted to make, like because I've mm-hmm. I've exerted control and gotten the image to look the way it's supposed to look. Um, and you know, Carpenter really didn't get to do that for a pretty long period of time in his movies. So it's kind of remarkable, given the constraints he was given, how faithfully his ideas come through. 
you know, and the fact that the film still looks pretty good for $6 million. Like that number shocked me how low it was. That is insane because, well, something that else, yeah, because I was just, I, uh, full confession to you. I had seen this, I had seen Escape from New York and Escape from LA so many times that I didn't even rewatch the movie in preparation for this episode, which is why I made the mistake twice in this podcast of mentioning the basketball scene, which is an Escape from LA thing, I realize now. But the reason I bring all of this up is that uh, this is a six million dollar. Uh, this is all of the limitations and all of the techniques that you're talking about, which came out of the fact that it's he's only dealing with six million dollars and his back is against the wall and a lot of different like restrictions. Um, Escape from L.A. because of the success of this movie, uh, they gave him fifty million dollars. That seems right. Yeah, right. Because he at this point had just like been shooting out these bangers. Now he didn't make that money back. Which is, you know... A terrible tragedy. Terrible yeah. tragedy, especially for that movie. A lot of people, you know, it's it's pretty hilarious to make. But the reason that I mention that is because it's even in my mind where I've seen both of these films, like, probably dozens of times, uh, the strategy and the visual, uh, like, aesthetic that you're talking about and the feeling of those restrictions, the movies feel consistent even though one is $6 million and one is $50 million and they're only years apart from each other. Like that to me means that not only is it intentional, but it's almost like Carpenter thrives on the restriction. He wants the restriction to be present because it means that he has to make these other decisions. It's where his and it genius his comes out. A little bit easier for him. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's something about a DIY, DIY kind of person who is works on so many disciplines in the craft, you know, music and, you know, uh, and, and, and just doing all the jobs and all the hats, uh, editing, et cetera. Uh, not just direction that he is the kind of person who's just like, let it be dictated for me. And then I'll, I'll make it work. Watch me. You know, right. I, I like so that about he, him, that he's very defiant in a way about reality. And when he's given $50 million, he's like, I'm going to shoot it the same way I shot. New York, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's like, that's a maniac thing to do. And most people would be like, I have over, I have almost uh, 12 times the budget over here. Uh, and so I'm sitting here and I'm like, I can do whatever I want. He's like, nah, I should probably keep them feeling similar. I mean, it's still a snake movie. It should feel like we shoot it the same way. And you do feel the $6 million ness of it versus Escape from LA has huge set pieces like the surfing and stuff like that and the basketball. But it is clear to me that this visual design, which was built out of necessity that when then later when he was, didn't have that like back against the wall, he he still still chose the strategy. And that tells you it's because he has like an artistic integrity about this type of stuff. Yeah, he's he's um I mean to be fully transparent, Carpenter is not my favorite filmmaker. Uh and I don't mean as a in terms of his talent or his choices. The the films he makes are not my favorite films. Right. Mostly and uh you know, that's not a knock on him. I think he's incredibly talented. I think it's indisputable he's incredibly talented. Um but I and like and that's the thing that drew me to this film and to doing a director piece about him is it's like he has a skill set that I understand from experience and like deeply admire. 
Like I think what he's able to do and how, how it seems actually kind of easy for him in a way, mm-hmm. you know, like he, he does make it look very effortless uh, and, you know, like not sweaty the way that a lot of independent films feel when they have these kind of restrictions. He feels right mm-hmm. at home with these kind of restrictions. And I just, I think that's really admirable. And I also, I do think he's successful at a mega budget level. Like I think he's made mm-hmm. good films at that level too. So I don't, I don't hear me saying, and I don't think Abe either that like, you know, he really is at home most when he has no money and has his back against the wall. I just no. think that he is good enough at storytelling that he can make a film pretty much in any circumstance and it's going to be competent, you know, like, yeah, that's, and that's I, pretty incredible. Yeah. It's, it's that he's scrappy. He has the uh, scrappy, uh, uh, a word machine. I hate, but yes, yeah. he, he is the most that. I love it. I love it. Well, You're I hate it because big, how big many times did, was that has that been thrown in our face? Like I just like it just brings oh, yeah, all the. Oh yeah, it's uh, now yeah. It's for you know. people who don't work in the industry. It's like every producer, every production company is looking for a director or a film crew that is scrappy or you know. Yeah, they think lean, it's a cute way of saying we're going to underfund another- this. Yeah. yeah, it's and it's it's usually taken as an insult just because it's like, yeah, so you like the aspect that we make internet videos. <laughs> okay. Uh, or that's or what you, you think don't the respect the needs of the film and you think mm-hmm. that you can make a buzzword that makes us think it's good. Right, yeah. You know, well, yeah, uh, which is a, a distraction from the point, but it's because yes. we're, all, we're all filled up with... Uh, with vigor and vim and vile a little bit because yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 the yeah. current strike that's happening as that's we're recording right. this, yeah. uh, they literally have gone on strike like last week. Right. And, um, and, uh, and more power to them, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's just on, on the mind, but it's like, yeah. yeah. When you think back of like how that manipulation is done, Carpenter kind of just took it in stride and was just like, yeah, you're not going to give me a, I made you, I made hell of fucking ween. And you're just gonna you're gonna just give and me you're six, gonna give me six million for an apocalypse. Six million dollars for it's an apocalypse. Ab- it's completely absurd. It, like That's when you think about how good to I mean to scale, how good to scale both of those films are. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like they're classics. Like they they transform two genres. They're slam dunks, and it's just you know? like what an embarrassment of riches for these production companies to have. Like let's I mean frankly, our tour our tours that are doing this like. Um, they're bringing their own crew. They're working kind of outside the studio system to some extent. And they're just like, we're just going to be young and crazy. And they're like, yeah, uh, we love slasher films, man. You know, the creators of Friday the 13th, like we'll make a franchise out of it. And it's just like, well, you just exploited a bunch of filmmakers. That's what you right. did. Exactly. Uh, but in you know, like, you know, it's easy to take shots at the studio and, sure. uh, and we can do a whole podcast on that. Um, and so, like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't mean to belittle the fact that uh, he should have had more money. It's not right that he didn't have more money. It's dumb. Even if he was like, yeah, I could do it for six, which maybe he did. Maybe he underbid himself. I don't know. Um, but he, the talent is undeniable. You know, yeah, um, it's and undeniable. The, and the techniques and the kind of, you know, scrappiness is to be admired from, you know, hindsight, you know, to be able to bet on yourself in that way and then watch the final product and be able to go like, like wow, I did it, it really does feel like a bigger movie than it. You know, you don't feel the budget, you know, sometimes you may, but like that is an insane kind of 
like you should feel the budget in every shot at six million dollars for post apocalypse. You know, like and that's what George Miller did. You know, there's ways in which you can do that. He was in a way smarter because he was like, I'm gonna film it in the outback where there is no civilization. So, so it's that'll all be free. an apocalypse. Yeah. You know, and that's like a very smart, cheap decision, arguably smarter than and what a safe Carpenter's one. doing. Yeah. And a safe one. But Carpenter was like, you know what? I can still do it, even though I don't necessarily know where I'm going to film New York, which is one of the most iconic cities in the world. (laughs) And I'm going to find a way to make it look like New York, but I can't shoot there. That is, to me, the boldest kind of DIY kind of filmmaking aspect. And it's also the core filmmaking spirit. And I think you think you do have to have this to be a director which is like, I have no idea what the solution is, but I'm willing to say that I can do it and it's going to yeah. get done, even though I don't even know the roadmap to get there because a lot of filmmaking yeah. is like that, where like the roadmap is not clear. It's not just even about designing what it would be. It's about mm-hmm. whatever roadmap I design uh, may not in any way correspond to reality, and yet I still will deliver it somehow. Yeah, you know? and Takes- probably a lot of faith in a team, you know? Right, I mean, well, that's all you have at that point, you know. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of rewrites, a lot of smart producers, you know, were a part of these projects. Absolutely. Well, that's my episode, Debra Evo. Hill. Yeah. Are you, hey, man, that, hey. that is, that is, I love this. I love it. I knew it would make you happy. I absolutely it me, knew it. It makes me smile right into my big K brand. <laughs> right so. into my third big K reference. <laughs> <sighs> And you I'm going to uh, drink one of those to find out what it is. I need to know. It's just an off-brand soda that is fine and okay. definitely half the price of like a Coca-Cola. It's incredible to me that you're that guy who wants to drink an off-brand soda. Like, I don't know of what that I is. Of course I do. I'm not going to pay for that. The, are you, Let me you ask you this. About? If they were selling soda in a 10-cent bag and you had to mm-hmm. drink it from a bag, but it was 10 cents, would you bag. drink that? Okay. All do right. I have to pay for the straw? For Let's my say bag? it's included. No, <laughs> then just definitely soda bag. Because you know, I look. I've had a lot of experience drinking from bags and a straw. If you oh, don't really? have a straw, it becomes a problem. So, like, yeah, 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 I, yeah, I see the disadvantage to bags. But if you got a straw, no problem, baby. <laughs> yeah, straw eliminates all the shame that would normally be all, connected to a bag. Yeah, it's all sugar anyway. So I'm just getting my fix because I don't I'm an care addict. What shape the sugar takes? I don't care. Just get it in my body. <laughs> just get it in my get it in my gullet. Jam it Sl- in my veins. Slop it down, <laughs> big K style. Anyway, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go ingest I think a bunch I, of sugar. I guess I've I've probably ruined our any any options we had to advertise Big K by calling it slop that I. <laughs> that I choked down, and I don't know how to edit anything out of a podcast, so I it's can't in there. Edit it. <laughs> Nor do I want to, because I am like John Carpenter. I work with the, the palette that I have. Uh, this is this is what Director Piece Theater is. This is the podcast you're listening to. Um, this was an excellent episode, and I want to direct your attention, the listener, uh, to Patreon.com/smallbeans, where you can get over half of our. Uh, our, our whole catalog is not on the free feed. So if you're listening to, you know, Podbean or iTunes or however you listen to podcasts, you're probably not hearing us. You could hear us twice as much if you go to patreon.com slash small beans, including 
exclusive shows like uh, Star Trek The Next Futurama and Spielboys, like Razorblade Pie. Uh, these are all these are all super cool shows that you so should be cool. listening to. So cool. Featuring mostly these two guys, you know. It's, it's, us, you. it's us a lot. Yeah. 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 We're we're in we're in there. Yeah. So um do that and I thank you if you are a Patreon. Thank you for doing that. Uh let's keep the lights on, everybody. Um while we descend into the madness that is the end of this year, uh, and we get closer to making a movie. Um, and that's all that's fit to print for the small beans. Uh, do you want to, what's, we're, we're, we don't do this all the time. What, uh, what's your Twitter? What's your website that you want to plug? Uh, fuck. I guess Twitter is where you can find me. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's the real Gans. I'm pretty sure with a Z, I'm pretty sure that, uh, I think on threads and blue sky, I'm also the real Gans. I don't remember. I might've had to change. Let me, let me look that shit up real quick. I do not know what those oh, things I'm, are. I'm on blue sky. I'm just at Gans. And on threads, I assume these are Twitter. These are Twitter analogs. To... Uh, on tw- on threads, I am the real Gans, just like Instagram. Threads. Yeah, that's the new. That one's going to take over Twitter. Is the theory? Oh, all right. Um. Let's anyway, go. yeah, let's go. Anyway, uh, you can find me there. If you're like, I don't really care about you or like you, but I'd like to see things you made. Uh, I do have a website that has all of Hell my yeah. work called. Uh, ganzerfilms.com where you can see, when I say all, I mean a curated selection of work I love uh, that shows how hireable and I am as a director. But that one's with an S, right? Yeah, Gans that one I don't films. I don't cutely misspell my own name. That's true. There you go. Yeah. Well, I don't have a website because I'm mm. a rebel. Yeah, you are. And I don't, I don't believe in the internet. <laughs> but I do have a Twitter, which I rarely <laughs> update other than movie updates for our Papa Bear movie, just because we're so busy right now. Uh, and you can find me at Abe the Mighty. And that's it. That's it for Director Peace Theater number 52. Can't believe How about that. that. That's wild. That's wild, man. Really wild. Until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.